When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back, and this is episode 239, Junior Developer's Guide to Confusing Terms. This episode is going to be all about some jargon, some technical terms, some whatever you want to call it that may confuse you if you're just getting into, well, just getting into programming or getting into a specific spot of programming, a little section of programming, and you're like, what's the CLI thing? What's this data structure thing? What is this? So we're going to be talking about a bunch of bunch of these terms and hopefully uh, basically just defining them into some basic definitions and help you through that type of thing. I'm also going to take this opportunity to apologize. I'm dying currently. I got some pretty bad food poisoning. So this is a mic heavy episode and I might disappear for a while. So if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon, leave a review or rating on your podcast app. Join us in our Discord server or share this with your friends. And now, Mike, let us know what terms we should be aware of. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I think like this episode came from my own experience as a junior developer, like when I was coming up and the fact that whenever you watch a blog or read a blog, watch a video, people just throw around terms as if everyone knows them. And it kind of gives you a pretty big sense of imposter syndrome right away or in, kind of demotivates you because you're like, well, they just said 15 words and I only understood like three of them. And this, I just want to reiterate that this kind of happens to everyone. This isn't just you that doesn't understand some of those terms. And even as you grow in your development path, this is going to continue to happen because as you go deeper into a technology, uh, a programming language, those terms will kind of increase in complexity sometimes. And people that, you know, have been in, in web development for 10, 15, 20 years, if you talk to them and you're just like, just getting in, they're going to be speaking a completely foreign language because there's just so many different technological terms and frameworks and libraries and stuff like that, that it really does start to overwhelm you. And I think one thing I will be going over terms, like specifically certain like very beginner level terms. I'll try to talk about them in the as highest level as I can. And Matt, you can jump in when you're not dying uh, and kind of Ask follow up questions if, if you don't, if you think I'm talking too technical. But overall, I just also want to reiterate that when you hear terms that you don't understand, sometimes it's on you to kind of go in and try to find out the definitions of them. So especially if you've heard them multiple times, like if you hear a random abbreviation that like, you know, TLK all of a sudden was said and you're like, you hear it once. And it doesn't seem relevant to you. You don't have to look it up right away. But if you start seeing like your colleagues or people in the tech space saying terms over and over again, that's your indicator that, hey, I should probably at least know what this is. So take stuff that you don't understand as a learning possibility and just a way to drive you to keep going rather than something that will kind of hinder you and scare you from the industry. So again, it's just trying to promote that learning mindset rather than the uh, closed mindset. 
But I kind of want to jump in right away and talk about the first term here, which is algorithms. This is, if you're a self-taught developer, especially, this can be a scary term. Well, when people are going through the traditional computer science or the computer engineering path, you will probably learn some algorithms. But to just jump into it, algorithms are a step-by-step instruction or rules on how to solve a specific problem and task in computing, right? There are certain common tasks that you're going to be doing on a consistent basis when you're programming, stuff like sorting, searching, graphing, uh, matching strings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera that are common across different languages and are common across different jobs and stuff. So you, there's just certain things that are consistent. And there are algorithms that help you solve those things. Okay, so there are sorting algorithms. There's like quick sort, bubble sort, uh, all different kinds of sorts. There's searching algorithms, binary tree, etc., that help you solve different kinds of problems. So if you need to search through a massive database, right, of images or of people, you can look for searching algorithms that have already been created and then try to implement them for your specific task, right? So the idea here isn't that you need to know every algorithm out there, but the idea of algorithms is just to make your job a little bit easier because stuff has already been done a million times and perfected. So you can go out there and look for algorithms that can fit your specific task. Now, would this be something something like in one of our first classes, I guess, in high school for programming, we did like bubble sorting. Would a bubble sorting be a type of algorithm or do you just call that a sorting algorithm? Like how is that sort of thing broken down? Bubble sort is absolutely a type of algorithm. It's a sorting algorithm, right? So it's a part of the sorting ones. And it is the first one that you usually learn as a computer science major or programmer or whatever. So it is just a way to sort a array of elements. So if you're sorting them by, um, I mean, the easiest one is just numbers, right? Like an array of a bunch of numbers and you check which number is higher or lower from left to right. And you kind of keep checking, keep checking, keep checking. And you do that however many times, however many elements are in your array, right? So you go from left to right and you check, 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 and you switch swap if one is higher or one is lower, depending on what you're sorting. But you can sort any any anything using a bubble sort. There's different reasons you would use a bubble sort versus like a, a different kind of sorting algorithm, right? There's different sorting algorithms are better for different things. And also you have to understand like something is going to perform better performance and um, the speed at which something is done is also very algorithmic. So I I don't want to get too far into it because I'm going to scare people. There's something called big O notation, O to the N, O to the O times N, O to the power of N and O to the N to the power of two. Anyway, again, I I don't want to scare people because that is, part of a computer science background education and it can get kind of really, really hairy, really, really quickly. But the idea that you know what an algorithm is and when to look for one is what I want to uh, have people understand is that there are these already step-by-step instruction problems being solved and you can go out there and look for them. Next thing here is data structures. So similar to algorithms, data structures are another thing that you would learn in a typical computer science degree. They are organized ways of storing and managing data in a computer. 
So it allows efficient access and modification. An example of data structures would be something like arrays, linked lists, trees, stuff that can can uh, organize data for you. So like if you need to store a bunch of numbers, right, then an array is probably a good way to store those bunch of numbers because it kind of combines them for you. I'm not going to go into what each and every data structure is, but know that when you need to contain elements, that's when you're going to be using data structures. And pseudo selectors is another one. So this one still kind of confuses me a little bit. So Matt, I'm actually wondering if you can do this one because I know we just covered pseudo selectors like recently in one of our podcast episodes. Uh, not well, but all right. Um, <laughs> basically, they're uh, they're special keywords um, and they're used to style elements uh, or uh, or a part of an element based on their state uh, or position in the document uh, without having to add any extra classes or IDs. So, for example, uh, if someone's hovering over uh, an element with the mouse cursor, that's the hover state and you can style it based upon... Like you could say, oh, I want to change the color when they hover and I want there to be a transition from one color to the other to make it look nice and smooth. Uh, another way to say it would be or another way, another, uh, I think it's pseudo elements is pseudo elements. They are styling a part of the element. They are not doing a state. So you can specifically target like before or after, for example, and this targets the area literally directly before or directly after the element. And you can put some stuff in there. You could put some text. You could put maybe a, a bit of a spacer in there, like some extra margin. The sky's the limit. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. So again, in CSS, you need those. You need these kind of pseudo selectors and elements to be able to work with an object around its actual physical capacity. So whatever is on the screen, you want to be able to work with something around it. So before or after, you want to be able to work with their interactions of that object hovering and stuff like that. Or you want to be able to work with like a a certain subset of that object as well, like the nth child. So if you have like 15 different list items, you want, I want only the fifth list item. I want to highlight that one. That's another part of the pseudo selector class. Uh, one thing just to be clear is that there are pseudo elements and pseudo classes. There is a difference. And I believe that pseudo elements, I always mess this up, but pseudo elements are selecting the the piece, like a, a piece of it, like the before or after. And then the other one is for the basically the status, like the hover or the focus or that type of thing. Cool. Good distinction. Thank you, Matt. Uh, next one here is packages. So this one definitely confused me initially. Uh I mean, eventually you'll use them so much that I think you'll understand them. But essentially, a package is a reusable piece of code or software library that can be easily shared and installed using a package manager like NPM, right, which is Node Package Manager. In the context of JavaScript, JavaScript projects specifically, where we're talking NPM is in the context of JavaScript. There's other package managers for different programming languages. And there's even other program uh, package managers for specifically uh, JavaScript as well, but NPM is just an example of one. And the big thing with packages to me is um, you can create a component. A component is different, right? A component is not a really a, a shareable across multiple different projects thing or not easily shareable across multiple different projects thing, but a, a package is something where you create it with the intention of someone else using it 
in their project however they want, right? So if you're creating a package for a date picker, for instance, you need to make it so that a user can, first of all, somehow install it and then also be able to access all the features that you've developed inside of it without having to go in and change any of your code. So usually you're accessing features through like exported functions or an API of some sorts that's been developed and you have some sort of documentation around how to use that in one shape or form. So that's what I consider a package in terms of web development, especially. You want to have that extra consideration of the fact that other people other than yourself will be using it without your direct help as well. Next thing here is CLI or terminal interface, right? So command line interface, a CLI or terminal uh, is a text-based user interface to interact with the computer's operating system by entering commands and receiving text output. So there's a graphical user interface. That is what we usually see in our typical Mac OS uh, or Ubuntu or Windows uh, operating systems where you have the windows all around. And then there's a way to actually perform almost any other, almost any task through a text-based system. And the reason that this is really relevant for development, uh, web development or any other development is that a lot of program, program tooling. So like your framework tooling or your, uh, your bundling tuning or tooling or whatever, uh, is accessed through a CLI. So a lot of times when you go and start a new project in like React, or Svelte or something, you'll have to use this, the command line interface to be able to run that project or build that project or interact in some way with the components of like all the different libraries that you have connected to that project. So if you need to generate like uh, a new, if you need to add a new library, for instance, we just talked about packages and libraries, uh, you can do that through a command line interface by just typing in like npm install uh, date picker, right? Whatever library name that you have. So those are the things that you would use a command line interface for. There's many other things, but knowing that it's a interface that you would interact with your computer through a text-based portal is the main takeaway from this. I do want to point something out here or maybe ask a question, but I always find that people get confused with the CLI and everyone kind of like cheers on its usage. And I do agree that the CLI is faster for some tasks and is very fast uh, if you've you know specifically learned on the CLI. And also, if you're, let's say, uh, using a Linux server and you're just doing everything via the CLI, obviously it helps performance-wise and storage space-wise to not have even the GUI installed, as many Linux servers do not. But my one thing, my one question with this is, you know, is does it make sense to learn the CLI slash the terminal and like, just figure out what it is, learn it. But then is there any shame in using something like, uh, I know we're going to get to Git, but like a Git UI, um, is there anything wrong with that? And the reason why I say that is because yes, you know, I understand that some people are very, very quick with the CLI, but there are some, uh, problems with the CLI that have been solved largely by, uh, UI, and this is just a convenience thing. But for example, one thing is this may be not, this might not uh, apply to many developers, but, um, I've had problems in the past where I've say copied very, a very large amount of files from one drive to another, uh, via the, uh, CLI. And I don't remember what the exact scenario was. And I think I was using Ubuntu server. Um, but there's just no progress bar. 
and you have no idea whether it's still going or uh, even more specifically, if you're using a software raid, um, there's no, you know, little window that pops up, say, on Windows where I can just click on, oh, I'll click on my raid and see what the progress is of it building, of it like creating that raid and of it being ready to go. And so I just kind of question like whether the CLI is an absolute necessity. I know it. I use it. But is it okay to use those UI tools or is it sort of frowned upon? So honestly, like, first of all, it's 100% okay to use UI tools. I'll get that right out of the way. Um, And I think the idea of the fact like the elitists that say that, hey, I'm only using a terminal for everything is a very, I don't want to be too harsh on anyone because everyone has their right to do whatever the heck they want in in this case. But realistically, UIs and GUIs were developed for a reason. And they took off and are the majority stakeholder or the majority use case for all operating systems for a very good reason. Um, Like you mentioned there, like the progress bar, the visual indicator of files being transferred, the just finding your files in general with a visual uh, UI, that stuff is there because it's just easier. And a lot of times it is quicker, in my opinion. There are certain things that the, the CLI can be quicker at. And if you're really, really good at typing on your keyboard, I'm sure that you can do things quicker than me like rolling around with my mouse all, all over the place. But having said that, there is keyboard shortcuts as well where you can do a lot with a f- very few amount of keys. So even with a GUI, you can still navigate with a keyboard. So I, I don't... That's not a huge thing for me. Um, the big thing that I want to say is that when you're learning, there's so many things to learn on your path to becoming a developer. And even after like you've already become a developer and you've been developing for years, that taking a GUI to like understand Git is a perfect way to learn, in my opinion. Like for me, I still, I don't use a GUI specifically, but in VS Code, there is a Git um, built-in function, like a, a built-in uh, side panel that will handle like the the commits and the pushes and stuff like that for you. I use a little bit of the CLI, but I still, major, the majority of my time is spent in that side panel for Git because it's just easier for me to see, hey, okay, these are all my files. I can constantly see all my files that I've changed, right? That's a GUI thing. If I wanted to see that in a CLI, I would have to constantly be typing that in somehow, somewhere, and see what files have changed. Okay, so I like seeing what files have been changed, so I use that 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 CL, um, the GUI version of it, and it goes through almost everything that has a GUI that I think will make my process a little bit easier or make me have to learn a little bit less. Because again, there's just so much around what I'm doing that I have to learn that whatever makes it easier for me, I'm going to go that path almost all the time. Now, if I start using something really, really heavily and I need some sort of really deep access to the features, a lot of times maybe the CLI is going to be more feature rich because it's easier to develop a, a really quick like uh, text-based command than it is to develop a whole GUI around it. Um, so you'll have to learn a little bit of the of the GUI. But the instinct to first go GUI and then CLI is, I think, the right one for a lot of cases, especially when you're learning, because visually seeing something happening is going to make it stick for a lot of people better. And there's no shame in that. Now, having said that, like, you can't, not everything has a GUI, 
like I was mentioning before, NPM doesn't really have a GUI. There might be extensions out there or something like that, but I've never seen it before. And a lot of developer tooling, like when you're dealing with Webpack, and we'll talk about bundlers literally in the next step here or in the next term. But when you're dealing with Webpack or VIT, a lot of that is through the CLI. There is no GUI around it. So there's no way to avoid the CLI. So you still need to know it. But if there's something out there that is going to provide you a good a good um, graphical user interface, Git is the perfect example. There's a Kraken, Kraken for one, and then there's GitHub Desktop. Um, those are great tools. Use them. Uh, okay. So next thing here is bundlers. So bundlers, we're going to talk about Webpack and VIT uh, specifically, are a tool that combines and optimizes code such as JavaScript, CSS, for production use. And uh, they also can do a couple other things. So bundlers can also handle your development server and they handle your de- dependency integrations. They can also be used to perform, improve performance. They can also be used to do a bunch of different things in the dev- in developer tooling system. So imagine you have, you're using um, just JavaScript. Let's say you're just using JavaScript and you have a complex application where you need to split up your calculations, you need to split up your data stuff, you need to split up your search, all into different files all across your your application. Uh, What a bundler can do is take all those files and then create a single file with all that and then also compress it so that all the spaces that you have in there and all the really long variable names are then changed to a smaller amount of, of characters, make it so that your files are really compressed and really quick and put them all into like three files, one HTML file, one CSS file, and one JavaScript file for easy deployment. That's called the building phase, right? And during the build phase, you can do a lot of different optimizations. Not all of them do them the uh, the same way. And you have a lot of control over how you want that kind of build process to do, uh, to to happen. A lot of times, what I want to say is that you won't have to learn the bundler itself to use uh, different kinds of systems. So React, for instance, or Svelte, or Next, or Nuxt, or whatever, all have a bundler associated with it, right? That has very good documentation on how you can use it, but you don't need to go in there and actually set it up. As soon as you run a command in the CLI we just talked about, like uh, <clears throat> Yarn or N- NPM, um, shoot, what's the... What's the command to like start a new next and next application or create React app or something like that? There's there's one. Let me let me get let me get uh, Next.js's docs up so that I can talk directly at it. He's not pulling up the docs. He's using ChatGPT. He's cheating. There we go. He's so cheating. if if you if you run something like npx create next app, that will generate a bunch of files for you from through the CLI. It'll generate real files in a folder wherever your CLI is currently based. And all those files will have JavaScript in them and stuff like that. And there will also be the bundler files. So Webpack or VIT bundler files where it will already be pre-configured for you to run that exact application that's being generated. So you don't have to go in there and actually change anything, especially initially, to be able to have a fully functioning bundled optimized application. 
I think a lot of times people get scared of bundlers because they're thinking, oh, I'm going to have to go in and learn them from scratch and be able to like set up an entire project, a, a, a node project using a bundler. And that's the only way to learn. But realistically, you don't need to do that until you actually have an issue with the bundling process, which can happen when you're building more complex applications. But at that point, what I recommend is you learn, you learn progressively as you, as those issues come up rather than sitting down and just learning the entire bundler feature set, because there's like so much you can do with it that it just doesn't make sense. I, uh, this is very not web development related, but every time you said bundler, all I could think of was, uh, storage wars and Daryl sheets, nickname being the gambler. For some reason. Damn it. Damn it. it. Was the- <laughs> so that doesn't make any sense, but <laughs> it was the first it, it, it kept popping up. I was like, man, it popped up once in my brain. It'll be all right. And every time you said it, it- <laughs> goddamn gambler. Okay. <laughs> all right. Next thing here, containerization. Uh, so talking, I'm going to be talking about two specific technologies. One is Docker. One is Kubernetes, but containerization is the process of packaging software and its dependencies into isolated lightweight units called containers. Docker is a popular ver- way to containerize something. And then K- Kubernetes is a popular way to take those containers and actually run them together, right? So the way that I like to think of this is you're developing on your local machine and your local machine is running Windows, for, for instance. And you have a bunch of configuration. I was just talking about the bundler. You have the bundler set up. And a lot of times... When you set something up, it'll automatically detect your operating system and set it up in a certain way that fits your operating system, right? It'll, it'll do all this in the background. The problem comes when you go and deploy this code that you've written into production. And a lot of production is not your Windows machine or your Mac OS machine. It's a Linux box that's running Ubuntu or Fedora, whatever, right? And the way that it deploys or the way that it builds there is going to be slightly different than the way that it builds on your Mac OS or Windows machine. Because again, when it goes through the setting up process, it has to target the operating system that it's targeting and the dependencies will be slightly different. So the reality is that a lot of times, and this has happened to me many times, whatever you're doing locally can break in production. And containerization, one feature of containerization is the fact that you can actually run a container of exactly your, your, your production environment on your local machine and develop as if you have like a server on your local machine, right? And when you take that container and everything's working and put it into a container on the production server, it will run the exact same way as on the local machine, okay? That's one feature that I really like because I've had that problem many times. The other feature that containerization enables is you develop the system, the self-contained system in a tiny container. And with something like Kubernetes, imagine you have too much traffic going into that one system. You can actually take that system, clone it, and and put it again uh, into a Kubernetes cluster, as you're calling it. And now you have like double the capacity. And you keep doing that uh, as your system grows and scales, you can keep doing that. Now, Obviously, you have to develop the system to be able to scale like that and communicate together with the different pieces. But that's another thing that containerization can enable for you. Next thing here is a framework. So a framework is a pre-built set of code and tools that provide structure and foundation for developing software applications more efficiently. 
Frameworks can include stuff like libraries, reusable components, guidelines, best practices, tools, anything like a CLI can be inside a framework and stuff like that. Um, a good example of frameworks in web development is uh, Svelte or Vue.js or uh, Next.js, right? Like uh, SvelteKit. I intentionally left out React because I don't want to get attacked, even though in my opinion, it can be and is a framework to a certain degree. The, the React developers themselves call it a library, but I don't want to get into the library and framework discussion in this podcast. I've talked about it many times in previous podcast episodes. You can go listen to the 10 million times that I've talked about it. But essentially, a framework is an, an, uh, a set of guidelines and tools that allow you to build complex applications or complex, like solve complex problems in a certain code base. Next thing here is an API. So an application programming interface is, again, a set of rules and protocols that allows software applications to communicate, so talk to each other, enabling developers to access and use features and data provided by external services or systems. Okay, so similar to how a package we just we talked about recently, an API is also something where you need to develop it with the mindset that, hey, someone else is going to be communicating with this and someone else is going to be using it. It's an external running program, right, that you can talk to and get information or send information to. So it can send you information or you can get information. For instance, let's say like uh, you want the stock data from Yahoo. They have an API, an application program interface that you can access and they will send you the data that you particularly request. So they'll send you the stock for Apple, for instance, if you ask for Apple stock in a programmatic way. You don't have to go and search on their website and then parse that website and find the Apple stock. You can actually communicate directly with like their server and just get that information really quickly without having to parse a bunch of HTML and JavaScript. Now I hear make your own API pretty frequently as well. Obviously, we know what an API is, but it's not always like for a big company like Yahoo or Apple or anything. I'm making like an API for my own thing. But I think that would be confusing to junior developers because they might be like, what do you mean? So what would be like a common, like, I don't know, I guess custom or I, I, I more, more specifically, I suppose it'd be a private API that somebody might have to make for themselves. Okay, I'll give you a couple examples of that. So an API that you would make for yourself, one of them would be something to access a database. So a lot of times when you're accessing a database that you set up with, with like, let's say user accounts, you need to be able to somehow access it, right? And ideally, you don't want to be accessing it directly from a front end, because when you access a database, you have to pass it some security stuff, right? And because then if you want people to be able to securely store information, you need to send it a key of some sort. If you pass it from the front end directly to the database, that key is public information. As we know with front end code, anything that you put into the code base, so if you have an API key, for instance, it is accessible through the sources of the website. Okay, So you don't want that. What you need to do is you need to create a middleware or an API that will access the database for you with that secure key. No one can access that secure key because it's running on a server, no longer on the front end. And you on the front end will just interface with that API that you've created 
to get the data that you need from your database, right? The other example would be authentication. And it's the exact same reason. Whenever you're authenticating, you need to pass back and forth a bunch of a set of keys that will authenticate you securely. And because authentication is requires that kind of uh, secret key, you need to have an API developed that can then take that key, parse it, and send it to the database to, to retrieve a user or to create a user. So anytime you're talking about uh, doing any secure any secure process, that's probably going to be an API. Another ex- another reason you would need one is if you're doing any sort of really computational heavy processing, like let's say uh, you need to um, do some sort of encoding of a video, right? Sometimes you don't want to do that on the client because you're taking up the client's resources so that like you, all of a sudden, if you're encoding a video on a client, their computer explodes or you, you need to be able to, uh, not, it doesn't actually explode, it just really, really gets hot or really, really out. Uh, I was going to say, what are you rendering? Like, what's going on here? I need a 36K video here. Yeah, but you don't want, a lot of times you don't want it to happen on the client because you don't want them to associate your website with super fast spinning fans. So you need to do that on the server. So again, you create an API to be able to send a file and then encode it and then send that file back to the front end encoded so that people can watch it in a decent quality or something like that. Okay, so next thing here is Git. Matt mentioned it recently uh, as we were talking about the CLI, but Git is a distributed version control system commonly used for tracking and managing changes in source code. It allows collaboration and efficient handling of multiple code versions. So essentially, its biggest thing is version control. Okay, so when you write something to a file, so let's say you're working on main.js, okay, and you add a functionality for clicking a button. And after you add that functionality, you then go in and your your friend goes in and he's also working on that same file and they add another version of clicking a button, okay? If you're working on the same file, right, how is it going to take your changes and the, and their changes and combine them together, right? Like you can't, like you, you could be live working on the same file. That's a different story. But if you're working on the same file and just like kind of checking it out, then those file, those changes could be actually merged in and collapse on each other or uh, wipe each other out. So your friend's changes can be there because he saved the, the file later and your changes will be gone. You need some way to handle this kind of situation. That's where Git comes in. So with Git, you can do something like a branch. So you take a version of your code and branch it off. You do your changes on that branch. Your friend does the same thing, does their changes on a different branch. So branch B, you're working on branch A. And when you go in and you merge your changes back into your main branch, quote unquote, the Git platform will actually do a, a, an intelligent merge for you and be like, okay, well, these changes were added and these changes were added in different sections of this file. So I can just put them both into the right sections and nothing gets broken. The other advantage of that is you can also see who made those changes. When you check something in to Git, it sh- it gives you uh, obviously a timestamp of when it was checked in, who checked it in, and you can add a message to your check-in saying like, hey, I added a click action to a button. And then your friend can be like, I added a click action to a button for whatever reason. And you can see who's made changes when. So it gives you a a history 
for your application that not only is great for like looking, you know, and checking out, hey, look how far we've come, but also if something goes wrong and that button that you added or that click you added broke the website, you can quickly revert to the previous commit, the previous thing in the Git history and have a have your, you know, finish your changes after that because now you know like, hey, this, this change is what broke it. So it's a very essential system and a very essential tool in the developer tool, toolbox that um, I recommend learning pretty early on in the process. You don't have to learn it right away. Like you, I, I would still recommend learning HTML, JavaScript, or HTML, CSS, and JavaScript first and foremost, and then maybe starting to reach for something like Git, right? But it really comes into play as soon as you start working in the field because you need something that can track changes and make sure that you're not wiping each other's changes out in a team. Next thing here, we're going to talk about an object. So especially in web development, objects are an extremely widely used data structure. Okay, and you're going to hear object all over the place. And an object is an instance of a data structure that represents a specific entity having properties, attributes, and methods, functions, to perform actions. So the way I like to think about it is it's a data structure, so something that contains a bunch of data, that can contain different kinds of data structures. So one object can have like multiple arrays, but it can also contain methods. So you can have like arrays and then a method for like sorting those arrays. We talked about that recently, right? So an object is just a combination of a bunch of different data in different forms and ability to manipulate it. One thing that I was taught, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is you can kind of think of it as like as if you were trying to store, for whatever reason, all the animals at the zoo in your program. Instead of going like var, you know, cow, var, monkey, var, whatever. Uh, although I don't know what zoo would have a cow, but anyway, <laughs> uh, basically what you would, what you would do is you would have like a data structure or an object or a class that's literally a, like it's animal. And then there underneath it to be like one of the properties would be name. So you could put like name, like cow, name, monkey, name, whatever. And then under there, you could put something else that's a little more complex. Like you could put like Mike said, an array, this and that, but you could put something like, and correct me if I'm wrong here. So it, it could detect something like, okay, uh, you know, if it's a monkey, then its weight is 100 pounds. If it's a cow, its weight is 200 pounds or something. And you could put that right in the object so that you, the user, uh, or I guess the developer, uh, whichever, however the uh, program is being written, basically, once you set the name, the rest of the properties like kind of figure themselves out. So, yes, uh, <clears throat> I'll clarify a little bit. So the class animal right? That's a different thing than an object. An object is an instant instance of a class, right? So when you create a pig, for instance, that's, that's an object. The object. Right. The animal class is the thing that contains all the functions that can create that pig. Okay? Right. Yeah. Okay. So that's the, I think it's, it, it's good that you brought that up. So just so I can explain the differences between a class and an object. I think the reason that I, I was hesitant on explaining classes is that it's a it's a more advanced topic in web development. We're talking to web developers a lot on this podcast, but it is like if you're a self-taught developer, you're going into web development, I would still recommend learning the basics and fundamentals of objects and classes 
because it's going to come up surprisingly, especially when you go in and start like really diving into libraries and you start creating packages, you're going to be creating some classes and some objects. Um, but for the most part, when you're starting out and you're just coding a website, you're probably not going to run across too, too many of these kinds of structures. So don't get too far into it. Like don't go crazy with learning this stuff, but having a, at least a basic knowledge of classes and objects is going to help you down the line for sure. Uh, okay. So next thing here is syntax. Syntax is a set of rules and structures governing the formation of valid statements or expressions in a programming language. So syntax defines how code should be written to be correctly understood by a compiler or an interpreter, right? So for instance, in JavaScript, to declare a variable, you would write let or var or const, then the variable name, then an equal sign, and then whatever you're setting that variable to. So like, let's say a string of dog and then a semicolon. That's the syntax, the proper way and structure to declare a variable in JavaScript. And in every programming language, it's going to be slightly different. And how to do a loop is going to be slightly different, etc. So understanding that the syntax just defines how a programming language sets its rules is the main concept that I want to kind of put across here. I find it pretty interesting that I find it pretty interesting that um, we can't just call it like a coding language or something like there has to be a jargon term for syntax. You know what I mean? And it's just one other. I understand it's easy once you understand it, but it's just one other thing to add to that pile that we literally just listed through. And I'm sure there's a whole bunch more that we haven't listed through. Just one other thing. <laughs> That's the thing. Like, it's just there's so much of this that obviously we couldn't handle everything. I was just doing things that came up. I asked actually a question on Twitter and some people answered with their own uh, terms that they, they had, they had struggles with. So I kind of added those in as well. So it was a combination of my own struggles with the audience's struggles, but realistically, yeah, Matt, there's thousands of more terms out there that could be confusing and it's not going to be, there's no actual definitive guide that could teach you all those terms. And that's not how I would want you to learn it anyway. I'm giving you the very basic overview of terms that I'm almost 100% sure you're going to hear on a consistent basis, but terms that are outside of the scope, like far, far outside of the scope of a junior developer, those terms you're going to come across. And as I said, right at the start of this episode, I would highly recommend you to selectively go in and learn them as they come. Don't get scared of them. Just know that, hey, these terms are here. Now I just, I'm going to write it down my phone. I heard it a couple times, so I need to go in and check out what it actually means. But honestly, uh, other than that, I don't have too, too much to talk about terms. I hope that this helped some people out there to understand the terms uh, that we talked about. I tried to make it as high level as possible. If I didn't do a good job, let me know at HTML Everything on Twitter. I'd love to know where I can be better at talking on a higher level. And if there's any terms that you particularly just want me to explain, also, again, reach out HTML Everything on Twitter. Sounds good. And uh, I'm going to go lay down. But before I do that, uh, many thanks to our $3 tier patrons, Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital on blueblackdigital.com, Tim from The Web Hacker on thewebhacker.com, Bib Hashdash from 9BlockMedia at 9BlockMedia.com, Jason from Geek Life Radio via geekliferadio.com, Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via mcwebstudio.ca, Magnus from YesWeb via yesweb.se, Jeff from Twitter via at the Jeff McHale, and Fire Ant Season via fireantseason.com. 
Feel free to leave a comment or review on the platform you're listening to this on, and this outro will sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.